Now I would invite Shannon, wearing two hats today, to read uh, the word of our Lord. Let's listen. From the book of James. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of one wearing fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the other who is poor you say, stand there, or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that God has promised to those who love God? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And please stand as you're able for the reading of the gospel. This is from Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Holy wisdom, holy word. Please be seated. So did you hear the words of inclusion in those two messages? One from Matthew, which we know as the Great Commission, where he sends to all the nations uh, to spread the word of Christ. And in the first, where James talks about how we treat people differently, and when we do so, uh, we're not obeying God's commandment. Um, I, I was having a little nervousness about the message this morning and that's not typical for me I'm kind of um, I'm usually fine speaking in front of people and so during first service I I was praying into that (laughs) what is this about Uh, and you know it came to me that I was kind of the different one in my family and that didn't always that wasn't always held in a way that uh, made me feel included Um, And so there's some tenderness around this topic of difference and inclusion um, today. And so in first service, I ask that people, if if they would pray uh, for me over the message, I would really appreciate that. And I'll I'll ask for that again uh, in this service. 
because it is it's very it's very stressful it's very estranging you if you are perceived if you feel yourself perceived as different uh, in a in a way that is not inclusive, uh, you can feel not part of of the human family. Especially when we hear phrases like these that I'll just share, um, and these are these are not these are not nice words. I didn't even I didn't even go here in first service, uh, but I've heard these spoken by people calling themselves Christian, uh, and nobody ever. See, saying words like these should ever call themselves a Christian. And if, if they are Christian, they should never say things like, have you noticed the Asian invasion in Bellevue? Or how about the browning of Microsoft? Mm-hmm. Wink. Uh, and isn't it terrible how single mothers are ruining our society? That's terrible. Oh, and uh, if you're new to town... Uh, you know, there's some nice restaurants in Capitol Hill, but don't go there unless you want a little fruit with your meal. So if you're not offended, you should be. These are, these are and what's more offensive is that people calling themselves Christian repeat these things. Um, my, my own cousin, actually, when I was in the room, said that one about single mothers. And when I pointed out to him, I, I'm a single Remember that I'm a single mom. You know that, right? He said, oh, but, but you're the exception, right? Oh, I guess I was his token. I guess anybody can tolerate just one of us. <laughs> so where does that conversation go? And I'm a person that um, I don't like conflict. I avoid conflict. And I can be kind of socially shy sometimes. So... So sometimes in the past, when, when I hear these phrases, and they, and they are very distasteful to me, I, I freeze up. You know, I, I, I don't know what to say. I don't have the words or the tools, and I just freeze up. And then it, it goes unnoticed and unremarked. But I, I was fortunate to have a wonderful friend, an African-American woman, um, in my early 20s who did diversity training in the corporate world, and she spoke to me about it. She said, you know, there are other ways that you can make it very clear that you are not appreciative of this conversation without being confrontive. You, if, you want to, if you want to stand up and say, that's not cool with me, great, more power to you. But, but if you're not comfortable with that, and what, and what may follow could be an uncomfortable you know, interaction. If you're not comfortable with that, try this. Change the subject. You don't even have to be polite about it. Oh, what about them raiders out there? You, or just walk away. Just walk away. Turn your back and go. And that gave me great permission. And I used that many times, actually. I have used that many times because the really sad thing is that my white skin can sometimes be a signal to other white people, certain white people who would say things around me that they would never dream of saying if there was a person of color in the room. And that's really sad. So I'm a little braver now. I'm a little braver now uh, about speaking up when I hear something offensive. But while that may stop the remarks, at least around me, uh, it might not go that one step further and open up a dialogue about, well, so why, why do you hold that view? Why do you feel that way or think that way? I wish I had opened that dialogue with my cousin. I, he's, he's dead now, and I never have that with him and say, well, you know, I'm interested. Why do you think that? 
because it's only in the context of a relationship and a trusting environment that these difficult conversations about difference, and let's face it, diversity is about difference, that these conversations can really uh, occur. And we're all different from one another. Uh, and in even the most intimate relationships, differences cause friction. Um, so, And learning to hold difference in a mature way is part of the spiritual path. It's part of spiritual health and maturity. Um, and, and, of course, diversity isn't just about ethnicity or race. When I first uh, uh, heard pastor call this church a diverse church, I kind of had to think to myself and go, well, what do I think about that? But, yeah. We have different opinions in this church. We have different politics in this church. We have different marital statuses, different sexual orientations, different financial statuses, uh, different physical abilities. In first service, uh, uh, Vince, who does the yoga classes, and I loved it because he stood up and he said, all ages, all abilities, everybody's welcome. And that was a great hello. Spilled her water. I think it'll be okay if we wait to wipe that. But it was a very inclusive way of inviting. And we, we are diverse in this congregation. So, so how we engage in the issue of holding difference is just as important within these walls as it is with how we engage with our community outside this church. Uh, and as we develop our abilities to hold difference in a, in a respectful, honorable way, those skills then will transfer outside this church. But in the context of racial and ethnic diversity, understanding, respecting, and even celebrating difference often begins when we first meet someone from outside our family or neighborhood background. Um, I would guess that most of us here, maybe not all of us, but most of us here probably grew up in a pretty homogenous neighborhood, uh, racially speaking. I know I did. Diversity (laughs) and... Diversity in my neighborhood was the one Jewish family who everybody was very polite to and who socially were completely shunned. And things have changed since then. Uh, I'm young enough. I mean, I'm young enough. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) I'm going to say it that way. I'm young enough to remember. I'm old enough to remember uh, school busing in the 70s. And that was how I met my first, the first African-American person that I knew was through the busing program and the, about a dozen you know, African-American kids huddled together like a school of fish in this vast white ocean, but I got to know some of them. Maybe not well, but it was a start. It was a start. And then in high school, my best friend was African-American. When I brought her home for the first time, yeah, not so good. My nephew, who was three, ran from the room and called her a monster because she had two-toned skin on her hands. He'd never seen a black person before. That was 1973. And my mother, who had never used this word in her life, later used a a, a, a racial slur that I will never repeat and I hope never to hear again. And I thought, you know, wow, really? Imagine how that felt to me. This is the first time I'm bringing home a person of color to meet my family. She didn't say it in front of my friend, but she said it. and, And it shamed me. But it was a hidden shame because we didn't have the tools in our family. We didn't have the, we didn't have those conversations. I think the closest my mom ever came to talking about race uh, was to say, 
be nice to black people. That doesn't go very far, right? And so, so after that, when I got together with that friend, yeah, we kind of went over to her house. But this was also my first exposure to the racism that my friend experienced every day of her life. Uh, when I walked down the street with her in a white neighborhood, people stared at us. And I wasn't used to that. That was new to me, but sadly not for her. She was used to it. Just as her brother was used to white women clutching their purses and crossing the street when they saw him coming, even if he had a suit on, even if he was walking to church or his job, you know. My education continued when, as a young woman, I worked at a multicultural arts organization in Los Angeles. This was a center that partnered with all the other uh, cultural arts organizations uh, in the area, La Plaza de la Raza, Bilingual Foundation for the Arts, East West Players, which was an Asian American theater, Theater for the Deaf. So this was a very rich experience for me and, and really increased my multicultural awareness uh, and skills. And, and here's the thing. You know, as one of the few white people in that environment, I have rarely felt more welcomed, more embraced. Uh, I was forgiven for most of my ignorance about a person of color's experience in, in the white world, and I was treated like family. I was included, invited, encouraged, asked to participate. I was praised for my gifts and given grace for my faults. And I want to repeat those words because I'm going to come back to them later. Invited, included, encouraged, and asked to participate. How I wish that kind of welcome had been extended to my high school friend, by my family, and my neighborhood. And, and during my time working in that arts organization, I found out a fascinating thing. I found out that conversations about race were happening every day in the households, in the neighborhoods, in the churches and community centers of people affected by racism. <laughs> Imagine that. But these certainly were not conversations that were happening in my family or my neighborhood, the neighborhood that I grew up in anyway. Um, and this was really eye-opening to me, to realize that people of color thought about and talked about race every day uh, because they experienced a different America than I did. So who are we? Who is Aldersgate to our diverse community, both ourselves and the community outside these walls? Let's start with the global community. We're partners with a school in Thailand. We support a mission in Nepal. Amy's off to the Philippines, and more, and so much more that I could even mention uh, today. Historically and, and, and currently, we are certainly citizens of, of the world, of the global community. This is just part of our Methodist DNA. You heard it in the commissioning uh, from Matthew. It's who we are. But why is it that sometimes, you know, sometimes it's easier to embrace diversity when it's in a community halfway across the globe than when it's right here in our own neighborhood. Uh, and what does it take to make our church feel, what did I say earlier, inviting, including, and encouraging of diversity? And not just to others, but to each other as well. <coughs> Eric Law, whom some of you may be familiar with, especially if you went to seminary, um, 
is an ordained Episcopal priest and an international consultant on multicultural leadership. He works with churches in developing uh, multiculturality. And I asked the library to purchase a couple of his books, which I thought he had called Inclusion, Making Room for Grace. It's just a beautiful book and a wonderful resource for churches looking to increase their skills at addressing and serving the diversity in their uh, congregations and their communities. Um, He has a rubric for communication, for communicating, for conversations about difference that he uses with every group he works with. And it helps to facilitate listening to one another in a way that allows for honoring and respecting and holding difference. Uh, Wendy printed out his guidelines, this rubric, and they're in the bulletin insert. And I want to invite you to just take those out for a minute because I want to go through them. So it's an acronym for respect. Take responsibility for what you feel and say without blaming others. That's so important. Without blaming others. Engage in empathic listening. Be sensitive to differences in communication styles. Not everybody feels comfortable speaking in a group. Not everybody knows what they want to say right away. Sometimes the quietest person has a jewel, but unless we make the space, you know, it will never come out. Ponder what you think and feel before you speak. And that always reminds me of Mary in Luke, who treasured the words in her heart and pondered them. Examine your own assumptions and and interpretations and perceptions. That could take me all day. You know, you got to look in. Uh, keep confidentiality, of course. And tolerate ambiguity because we're not here to define or to debate who or what is right or wrong. I think that is so crucial. The minute you start trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong, you've lost it. You've, you've, you've broken open the vessel for holding and honoring difference. We're, we're not here to debate that. We're here to celebrate our life in Christ. And his vision for the world. And that vision is most certainly multicultural. Jorge Lockwood, who leads the Global Praise Program at uh, Global Ministries, Methodist Global Ministries, wrote an article last year on developing multicultural churches. In that article, he offers this statistic. As of 2010, so that's four years ago, 36-some percent of the U.S. population age 18 and older was of a non-white or ethnic minority. Even more significant, 46.5% of the population age 18 and under was ethnic minority, non-white, or both. In 2013, these percentages are approaching or surpassing 50%. Does the term minority even make sense in that context? And then he says, I've never really liked that word, actually. Then he says, simply... The future of the church in the United States, church with both a big C and a small C, is multicultural. This is the vision in Revelation 7-9. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb, robed in white, 
with palm branches in their hands. What a beautiful vision. What a beautiful vision. But I don't think realizing that vision just happens. One day we wake up and viola. We are multicultural. All churches are multicultural. It takes responding to the cultural shifts around us in a conscious, intentional way. It takes inviting, including, encouraging, and celebrating. So how do we engage in this cultural shift as a church? It isn't just about saying all are welcome here. It's about including diversity in our visuals, in our staff, in our programming, and so much more. I know Pastor Brad has spoken about the Ethnic Ministries uh, outreach grant that we received and some of the initial interviews that Candace McKenzie and Linda Dietering uh, and the pastor held with some of the Korean moms from the preschool. And I liked a couple of things that they did uh, a lot. One, they, in- they translated the invitations into Korean. Hello. It seems so simple. But if you have language difficulties and you're trying to fit into a new culture, they can go under the radar. And if you have language difficulties, it's harder to ask for help. Inviting. That's very inviting. And then the other thing that they did was they just asked. They didn't come with presuppositions about what was needed or what would work or suggestions. They asked, what are your roadblocks? What can we do to help? They invited. They included And they listened. And listening is holy work. And we need to listen to each other. We need to make space to hear our differences. We need to have those conversations. Race and culture and diversity and inclusion need to be part of our vocabulary as we engage Christ's work in the world. We're not alike. And some of us are more not alike than others. Especially me. But that is actually our biggest strength. That and Christ to guide us. So I'll just close with a couple of quotes. The first is from Jorge Lockwood. We'll know that we've reached true multicultural fellowship when we recognize the gospel incarnate in one another. When I know Christ in you and you know Christ in me, we all need to know what Christ looks like to one another. And this from Eric Law. The work of inclusion is not just a human endeavor. It has divine implications. Because as we reveal ourselves and our community's experience of God to one another, we are participating in the revelation of God. Ultimately, it is Christ who is the true guide to our work of inclusion. Because Christ is the gate of our community. Will you pray with me? Lord, open our eyes to the beautiful differences in one another. Open our ears to listen to voices different than our own with compassion and curiosity. And open our hearts to invite, include, and encourage one another. In Christ's name, amen.